honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. If anybody's ever seen us on Extreme Couponing, we're uh, season four, episode two. Uh, the woman who is the couponer who works with our facility, um, her husband used to run a nonprofit that would go from uh, stop to stop along the highways, rest stops along the highways, passing out information and education for people to get help and for people who have seen signs of, of kids being trafficked. Um, numbers to call all the way from Colorado to Mexico. Uh, he did this work. Um, and I have had connections uh, with other administrators of facilities who specialize in human trafficking. But the reason why I wanted to do today's show primarily is because uh, a year ago I was at a conference and a a person from the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, a woman, an, a, a, a woman agent from the Colorado Bureau of Investigations and a woman agent from the state police, um, both of them involved in a, a cooperative task force to battle uh, child trafficking and human trafficking in the state of Colorado, gave a speech to facility owners. And I was informed that Colorado was number two in the U.S. for trafficking. And I was utterly blown away. And they said that that we raised to number two in uh, 2012 when marijuana was legalized, and it was because of tourism. And that alluded to the idea that this was about prostitution, which means that men were trafficking for trafficking women and children for the use of other men. And I have a daughter, and I work with people's daughters and sons who have run away. And when I told the kids this morning, as I was teaching martial arts to them, that I was speaking with my guest about human trafficking, one of the girls told me that she had been approached at Walmart and offered a modeling gig. And she said there was something about it we didn't trust. It's going on in our neighborhoods. It's going on in our cities. And apparently in Colorado, it's going on a lot. And so I want families, parents, teachers, and clinicians to really get the, 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 the pure juice on, on this issue because it's not, it's not something that's happening somewhere else. It's happening right here, right in your neighborhood. Wherever you are, it's happening. 
My guest today is Maria Trujillo. She's from uh, CDPS, uh, Colorado Department of Public Safety. And she works with human trafficking. And I want her to tell us what's going on. Thank you for joining me today on Beyond Risk and Back. Today's show is called Stopping Traffic, and my guest is Maria Trujillo. Maria, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to uh, be with us today and give some real information to parents, teachers, and clinicians. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so how on earth did you end up doing this work? What is it, what, what did you study? What happened in your life? How come you're here fighting this battle? And this is a, this is a dark battle. This is a shadowy, shadowy battle. How did you end up here? That is a wonderful question. Um, I was first introduced to the issue of human trafficking before human trafficking was even a term. I spent in high school a year studying the use of multinational corporations and the use of sweatshop labor in developing countries. And at the t and we were researching this gross atrocity that was happening overseas and how horrible it was that these big multinationals were using people in this way in these slave-like conditions. And something was planted in me at that time, a seed was planted, and I didn't know it, but uh, it became kind of a issue that just kept growing and growing. And then I've had the opportunity over my academic career to live overseas. I spent a significant time living in Japan and traveling through East and Southeast Asia and places like Thailand and Cambodia and China. And in those places, I saw um, sex trafficking happening and human trafficking um, happening in front of my eyes and seeing the people who were, you know, victims of this crime. And so when I returned to the United States, I decided that I wanted to give back to my community in some way. And I really wanted to work on this issue that was now coined as human trafficking. And I had a, my full-time job working in international development work but this is what I wanted to do in my spare time as a volunteer. And so I tried to seek out opportunities for that. And I was living in D.C. at the time and found a meetup group called D.C. Stop Modern Slavery and joined that group. And it was this group of concerned citizens who just wanted to make a difference in some way in their community in D.C. to address human trafficking. And it was a perfect time for me to join that group. They were still in their learning phase. They were really thirsty for information, and I was too. But they wanted to also take that information and turn it into action and do something with that information, bring awareness, raise that bar. And that's what we did. We, as concerned citizens, would give out, give trainings. We would host film screenings and talks about the issue and give out information with the National Human Trafficking Hotline and things like that. And I did that for several years in DC. I started calling it my pro bono job. And then I got to a point in my life where I really just wanted to do this work full time. This is what I was passionate about. This is what I wanted to dedicate my career to. And so I just put it out there to the people I had met um, doing this volunteer work. And it came across an opportunity to run a small nonprofit organization in Houston, and I put my name in the hat for that and got this great job to be the executive director of an organization called United Against Human Trafficking. I made this big leap of faith and moved to Houston, Texas, and took on the role of running this organization and got really 
in depth with the issue of human trafficking, working on that issue full time. We focused on what I call the upstream work of human trafficking, raising public awareness about the issue, training frontline professionals on how to identify and address and respond to human trafficking in their communities, and really getting the community engaged on this issue because we really need the community to be the eyes and ears and identifying situations of human trafficking. So I spent a lot of my time doing that. I worked in Houston for six years um, running that nonprofit. And then that led me to the opportunity here in Colorado to actually return to my home state. I'm a native Coloradan and um, work on this issue on the statewide level. So I'm super thrilled to be back in Colorado now for three years uh, addressing this issue that I'm passionate about that I've been working on now working on for over a decade, which is kind of crazy to um, think about and also address this issue at a state level in my hometown um, and really, really get at it and on a deeper level, which is really exciting. And what does your job entail now? Like, like as you, as you go to work every day, what does a day in your life look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a lot of variety of things that I do. Uh, one of the big, the things that um, one of my primary responsibilities is to really oversee and coordinate the work of the Colorado Human Trafficking Council, which is super unique. Um, it's a state, uh, a statewide council that brings multiple stakeholders to the table. It's a 31 member board and we bring in people from across the state from all these different disciplines, including survivors of human trafficking, come together in a coordinated way to really come up with a comprehensive uh, plan to address human trafficking. We have, we, and we do that in lots of different ways. We study different issues like we are doing an in-depth study on labor trafficking and how we in Colorado could better address labor trafficking and the end result of that work might be to make some statutory recommendations going forward to the 2019 legislative session. It might include developing some training material for prosecutors and law enforcement to better to be better equipped in um, investigating and prosecuting labor trafficking cases. It also might um, come up with some other things, so maybe um, some doing some training with industry folks who might, unbeknownst to them, be involved in labor trafficking through their supply chains or things like that. We've also I also, we also run a training program out of my office and we train frontline professionals all across the state. We have a core human trafficking training for various sectors and also a law enforcement training. And we're also working on an advanced training for social service providers. So for mental health providers, clinicians, um, case managers that we're hoping to launch in the fall of this year. So that's another part of the, my job. And then we're also looking working to develop a um, statewide public awareness campaign on this issue because we really need everyday community members to know that human trafficking not only exists, but it exists in our state and their community. And we found that our research has shown that the average Coloradan knows that human trafficking exists and knows the terms, but they have maybe limited understanding of the full picture of human trafficking, but they also don't believe that it's happening in their communities. And so we really want to do a statewide campaign that really brings that to the forefront and um, really make sure that people know that human trafficking exists in their community and that they really have a responsibility to be the eyes and ears on this issue to bring information to law enforcement so we could really better identify victims and bring them out of the shadows and bring and give them the assistance that they really need so that's some of the work that i do okay so that's you've been doing this a long time you've been everywhere on the front lines right right down in the shadows with this and now you're in the 
the halls, uh, is the, 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 the ivory halls, the white pillared buildings fighting this fight. So you've been on all sides of this, it sounds like. Definitely, definitely right in the ground all the way to working with a government. It's, it's been really a privilege to kind of have I'm, all that, those opportunities. This is amazing. So it, this also branches into the meat and potatoes because you talk about, you know, it going on in our communities and that we know the term and we know that it happens, but it happens here. What? In Colorado? But we're so whatever we are here. So <laughs> is this is this true? Is it this thing that I said at the beginning of the show, Colorado was number two back in 2012. We moved to number four after that. Where are we now? How bad is it in Colorado? And that's a really great question, and I get that question all the time. Unfortunately, I don't have a good answer because human trafficking is not something that we can really study in terms of prevalence, like real solid numbers. Everything that we have about kind of statistical information um, is, in terms of prevalence, is an estimate. It's our best guess. And unfortunately, no one has done a really solid study of prevalence here in the United States and what it looks like. And for me, it does, that doesn't really matter how big is of a problem is it in, the, in Colorado. For me, I know it happens every day in every city in our state, in every town in our state, and like one is more than enough. You know, like I know, and it, I know that it's happening more to the, the, you know, it's happening to people, not just one single person, but many more people, and because we see the numbers, so. What we measure in terms of stats is incidents. And so we're seeing that our incidence numbers of human trafficking go up and up because I think we're being better at identifying. We're seeing our numbers of prosecutions on human trafficking since the revamp of our laws in 2014 increase every single year. Does it mean that Colorado's problem is increasing or is increasing right now? I think it, who knows? But what I think is that we're actually doing a much better job at identifying the crime, understanding the crime, and prosecuting that crime. So the numbers are, and we're going to see the numbers go up and up. And when we start doing a, a statewide public awareness campaign, we're going to see the numbers increase more and more because people are going to report it more and more. Right now, you know, in Colorado, the last few years, you know, only 300 calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline are coming from Colorado. That's actually a pretty low number. I was getting 300 calls from Houston, just Houston, the city of Houston, in like a, maybe a month or a quarter. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't have a problem in Colorado. We definitely do. But we need people to be better equipped to identify and know that there's a National Human Trafficking Hotline number and that they could call this information in and have investigators equipped to investigate the crime. I heard that Colorado is is relatively particular with trafficking because of the highway system we have here and the major cross point of uh, 70 and 25. Is that is that accurate or is Colorado uh, uh, a slice of a, of America? What we see here, we see there. I think it's 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 both. You know, there's some unique factors that make Colorado unique in terms of bringing more human trafficking through and in our state. I think having the highways definitely makes us a transportation point. So, you know, as uh, victims are being transported from place to place, they're stopping through Colorado because it's a major, um, a major stopping point. It's on the path to, you know, traffickers might create a circuit, if you will, from California to Arizona to New Mexico, 
to New Mexico, to Colorado, to um, Kansas, and then go back around. So I think being where we're situated kind of in the, in, you know, in the country makes us a point of where trafficking is going to come through both east to west and north and south. The other thing is that we have a large, you know, international airport, uh, a lot of people coming into our state for that purpose. We also have, a, it's a really great state, you know, as we've seen, you know, many, many people are moving to Colorado and there's lots of festivals and activities and events that are happening in Colorado. You know, we hosted the national, you know, the Democratic National Convention several years ago. We have major sporting events here in our state. We have this um, a big stock show that happens in January. We have all these different events that bring people to our state. Hunting, and also skiing, marijuana. Hunting, skiing, yeah. and, mar and marijuana, exactly. And I think that has been an interesting shift in bringing people to our state and um, that tourism piece. But also the marijuana industry has potentially grown a, a potential market for more labor trafficking as wow as black market marijuana is becoming predominant in our state, which is is an odd thing to say because we've legalized marijuana, but it's for export. And so you're kind of seeing criminals shifting from, because it's legalized to another kind of like illegal side of the marijuana industry and potentially using labor trafficking to help boost their profits in that area. Okay, so, that's so this- That's an interesting kind of shift. Yeah, this this starts to to bring me to the question: Who's doing this? Who who is trafficking people? I mean, because because the assumption is this is about prostitution, and I and I I said that also at the beginning that that's that's kind of the idea that I hold with this, but now you're talking about you know crops, and you're talking about what are you talking about? What what, what is trafficking? What's it for? And who's doing this? Yeah, so on the so in terms of human trafficking, what is it and what are we talking about? You know, human trafficking at its core is the denial of someone's human rights, their basic freedom and dignity. You know, it's a market-driven criminal industry that is fueled by the demand for labor services and commercial sex acts. So it's both sides of that. You know, victims are forced, defrauded, or coerced in providing those services and those commercial sex acts. So there's those two sides to the pie when it comes to human trafficking, this labor trafficking side as well as the sex trafficking side. And, um, you know, human trafficking also doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's part of a long continuum of exploitation that occurs you know, throughout kind of a labor market. And it's at the extreme end of that spectrum where human trafficking lives. And when we talk about the traffickers, you know, I always, when I give presentations, I always tell people, I'm like, I wish I could like pull down a poster and say, that's a trafficker. Everyone go after that person. Unfortunately, traffickers are everyday human beings. They're male, they're female, they're from all different backgrounds. They're US citizens, they're foreign nationals. And the trafficking operations are incredibly unique as well. You could have an individual trafficking operation like a pimp who has his his or hers kind of stable of um, of people who they um, say sex traffic. And so they might have three or four individuals that they have under their control. It could be a family. So it could be a domestic servitude situation where you have a family like a mom and a dad and maybe the kids and they're kind of all involved in keeping this servant or this person who provides domestic work um, services as well as maybe nanny services under their thumb and it's all inside all of the trafficking happens within the realm of the household so it's all with and those often are um, situations that happen in 
high class suburban neighborhoods in multi-million dollar homes. Um, so that's another place where trafficking could happen. We also have informal criminal operations that take place where you have a family, a larger extended family operation. There was a case in Houston where the head of that operation was a woman named that went by the nickname of Latencha, and she was the matriarch of the household, and she also had her daughters involved and providing, you know, engaging in commercial sex acts, but also keeping the other people in check. She had cousins and uncles and other folks who were the controllers of the operation, and they operated entire, um, a brothel within a nightclub in a, you know, within a Houston neighborhood. You also have gang networks. We have gangs who are coming very active in the sex trafficking realm and maybe even rival gangs or gangs who are coming together, kind of setting aside their differences to create these uh, these circuits throughout the country and connecting from Florida all the way to California, these circuits of sex trafficking rings that are happening. We also have businesses involved like nail salons and massage parlors and um, farms and agriculture and labor, um, you know, construction and, and all these types of things are all happening um, and are all part of human trafficking. So, so this now brings me to the question that I believe to, to, to someone who works in the mental health field, um, the answer can be obvious, but let's, let's break it down for the listeners. Why does someone tolerate being sex trafficked or, or I'm sorry, just trafficked in general, how does how does uh, uh, and maybe not a family member because that that kind of create there's an attachment issue there. But how is someone passed around from gang to gang or from corporation to corporation? Don't don't they know better? Don't they know they're being abused? Why don't they get help? Yeah, so there are a lot of reasons and a lot of methods of control that traffickers use to keep their person um, it, under their control. So one thing that could happen is there could be levels of economic abuse, so demanding high quotas, being in debt bondage, so believing that you owe this person, a, you owe a debt to your employer, and as soon as you pay off that debt, you'll be set free. Um, there are also controls over like document conflict, confiscation, especially for foreign national victims, where their passport is taken away from there or any other identification documents that, you know, if they leave their employment, they will no longer be in the country legally. So that that holding over that legal status over let somebody. Me, let me interject something here, because I, yeah. I remember watching a documentary about that happening in Dubai and where where, you know, workers who build these massive hotels mm -hmm. um, for, uh, you know, very wealthy white men um, are are, you know, held in these, you know, just utter labor camps because of the document control. And I remember talking to my son about that, who had taken a human trafficking, uh, human slavery course in high school in Boulder as well. Um, and he got really upset with me. He says, you know, we, we can't point fingers outside the United States. It's worse here. And so mm -hmm. I want to I want to clarify, you're talking about stuff that's happening here. You're not talking about Indonesia or Dubai or you're talking about Colorado. Absolutely. I'm talking about things that happen here in the United States and here in Colorado, for sure. All right. So back to back to some of the control issues, document control, which means they'd be here illegally, yeah. which means they have no recourse to law at that point. So what else? Yeah. And then also, you know, physical and sexual assault is very common, both in sex trafficking and labor trafficking. 
And then also threats against your family and friends. So, you know, one of the main reasons why someone might stay in their situation is that they feel that they're protecting their family by staying in their situation. And if they leave, that those threats feel very real, even if they may not be real, but to them, they feel very real. And they're doing it to protect their family and friends, especially if you have a trafficker who's saying, who shows you a picture of their family member saying like, hey, if you don't do what I say, you're never going to see your mom again, or you're never going to see your daughter again, or you're never going to see your sister again. Um, that cycle, And then also built with a psychological, psychological manipulation, the lies, like if you go to the police, they're not there to help you. They're not going to protect you. They're just going to deport you or they're just going to put you in jail. And oftentimes that has been true in their, in their lives and they haven't been able to trust the police um, or you can't trust the system because no one's going to understand you. No one's going to be able to understand the things that you've done and you're just going to, you are you should feel shame and the shame alone might keep someone in their situation, shame of what they've been experienced, the shame that they feel that no one could understand what they've been through and that they have no self-worth after what they've been done, they, that there's no way for them to function in normal society. Um, but, and then also just isolation and control, you know, many trafficking victims have cell phones and we often think, Oh, well they have a cell phone. They're going to, they're meeting a client at a hotel by themselves. Like, why don't they just leave? Well, one, all the reasons that I said, but also that cell phone is also basically a tracking device. You know, a lot of parents know that they have these apps and you make sure you know where your child is and you can check on your app where they are. And traffickers use the same kind of apps um, as parents do. And they have, call in and say like you need to call me as soon as you arrive you need to call me as soon as you leave and i have this app and i know exactly where you're you where you are and who you call and all of these things and so that there's a lot of isolate a lot of control and then also a lot of isolation from everything that you know to the, the your past life you know all the people that you used to associate with you the trafficker very much quickly isolates you from all of those social um connections that you used to have and make you feel like you can't reach out to those people anymore and nor do you nor do you want to because you're maybe your world is centered around this tra this trafficker and trafficking situation and also a lot of traffickers in their recruitment build trust and rapport with this individual before they turn the tables into a trafficking situation so there is this bondage this you know psychological bond with their trafficker which could be a loving relationship. They might have a, a physical and um, and um, emotional relationship with their trafficker, which is difficult to kind of come to grips with and tear themselves apart from. And there also might be drug use by the trafficker or drug use and dependency that comes about because of coping with their situation. Is there a, a kind of standard recruitment process to point to and say, this is how you know if someone you love or this is how to recognize that someone's being groomed or something like that is there how do, how do you guys what what has shown up through the prosecution and and the the breaking down the deconstruction of how traffickers do their business is there a is there a standard mo yeah so and i'll talk primarily with kids and um you know given your audience and with like kind of child sex trafficking and trafficking um, one of the things that I'll say is the studies have shown when you talk to um, trafficking survivors after the fact, like who was their trafficker? Like what kind of relationship did you have with your trafficker prior to 
you know, being in your situation. And in this one particular study out of New York, you know, 36% said that their trafficker was an immediate family member. So that alone already shows like there's already a very trusting relationship there prior to that trafficking experience. Uh, 27% reported that it was some kind of uh, a boyfriend or partner of some kind. So that was the relationship that they had prior to turning to a trafficking experience. 14% reported that it was an employer or a friend or family. And only 9% reported that it was a stranger. So you could see how through the, re the recruitment process is all about building primarily a relationship with the individual before turning it into a trafficking experience. So, and they're doing that either because they have a family relationship already, or they're building a intimate partner relationship with that person. So building, you know, becoming their boyfriend or girlfriend and, and doing that in stages. Maybe they started as a social media recruitment. They are going on, you know, traffickers are using every single popular social media app that's out there to recruit their victims. It could be Facebook, it could be Snapchat, it could be a dating app or any other thing that's out there that I don't even know about. And so parents especially need to be very aware of how their children are engaging with people on social media and who they're engaging with. And I think we often have a false comfort with people who we engage with in social media. And kids are often very naive about who they're meeting on social media, or even like when they're playing video games, they could, you know, play a game against another person from who, you know, who might be in um, the Middle East somewhere or in Europe, um, or maybe they're across the street and they don't know, and they might be giving um, signs about where they live and what school do they go to and giving tips to the trafficker about the person that they are. Um, so traffickers are very savvy at picking up those small little details of what might be going wrong in someone's life and picking that up and saying like, oh, you just had a fight with your mom. Like, you know, it's hard. Parents often don't understand. Like, I'm a, I'm, gonna, I'm a listening ear. I'm here to help you. Like, tell me about it. And just traffickers are very good at listening. I had an FBI agent say, if it, a trafficker would be the best boyfriend ever because they listen and listen and listen and are there to like hear what you have to say and are very convincing. They're very charismatic um, and they're, they're, they seemed very thoughtful at the beginning. It's psychopathic. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening to you talk about this and just so that I use the right term because I was thinking sociopathic, but I pulled up psychopathy and, and, I, I like it. Like it's, it's, it's sickening the level of commitment they have to entering in. I mean, they're they're willing to take as much time as needed. This this because the payoff this, is big. Oh well, okay. So talk about that for a second because I I remember hearing some of the financial terms that mm -hmm. uh, someone with a a, a a man or a woman with four um, he, you know people in their stable how much they could earn in a week and the numbers were off the chart. And I was like, well, that's, that's a massive payoff um, yeah. financially. What are, what are some of the numbers that you've seen about how much, how much can be made? Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge payoff. You know, the numbers that I'm going to talk about right now are really are global numbers, so they're not localized. But um, the estimated annual profits for trafficking, like all of trafficking on a global scale, is $150 billion. Oh, my God. And $99 billion is made within sexual exploitation. So the vast majority of that money is definitely made 
in the sex trafficking realm. It's and it's I mean that's huge amounts of money. That's more than I think your Starbucks is making or Google. Like traffickers globally on an annual scale are making billions and billions, I mean hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so this is a major money making um, enterprise to enter. And, you know, criminals are understanding that there's a lot of money to be made in the human trafficking business and often are diversifying their portfolios. They might have been doing drug trafficking or arms dealing and realizing, oh, you know, I could also use the same routes that I use in my drug trafficking scheme and I can make more money selling human beings and selling their services. And why not do that too? Okay, so I'm. I, I guess. I guess the question is: Am I at the airport? Am I at the train station? Am I at a bus stop? Am I at a rest stop on the highway? Where am I most likely to to see something happening? That's a good question. Um, certainly, people are coming in and out of airports, and we've definitely heard those stories of well-trained flight attendants being able to pick up on the signs of control that might be happening on an airplane and calling the police upon, uh, you know, upon their, uh, their arrival at the airport. So yeah, if you're at, you know, people are coming in and out of airports and if you see something, you know, a, a dynamic that just seems not right. And that could be at your airport, at your train station, at your grocery store, at your rest stop, you know, the dynamic between two individuals just seems really off. And there's, you know, just like you would even picking up on domestic, um, on domestic abuse and domestic violence, so you know, that there's some power and control dynamics happening. This person, you know, their demeanor is very odd. You know, they feel like they're really frightened or nervous or hypervigilant, um, you know, that there's definitely that a controlling relationship taking place. You know, they don't seem very much in control of their own belongings. They don't have control of their their money or their um or their passport and it's and it's funny because you know like parents often have control of their stuff for their children but you know that you could tell a parent child relationship is loving and that's a different kind of relationship versus a super controlling relationship that is built around you know psychological manipulation and and a shame and um and in the physical abuse and sexual abuse. I mean, that's a different, that, that shows up differently. Um, and oftentimes it's just a, a, it's an icky feeling that you have in your stomach and that's enough. Call the hotline. You know, you never know that how, that you might be saving someone's life. Okay. Yeah, what's, what, tell me the, about the hotline real quick. We'll repeat it at the end of the show as well, but what's a, what's a, what do you mean call the hotline? Yes. So um, we are actually very privileged here in Colorado to have several hotlines. There is the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is obviously across the United States, and that is uh, run out of D.C. from um, the Polaris Project, and that number is 1-888-3737-888. They also have a text line that you could contact, and you could text either HELP or INFO to the 233 733. So that's really great to know that they have a text line, and that's um, a really great thing. In Colorado, we also have a Colorado State Human Trafficking Hotline that's run by the Colorado Network to End Human Trafficking, and they have a wealth of information about services available in our state. And um, so if you're really, if you have someone where you're really looking for a service provider and connecting that person to appropriate services in our state, then Colorado Human Trafficking Hotline is a really great number. And that's 
455-5075, and they also can certainly take tips as well. And then for your mandatory reporters, because I know you have some clinicians who listen to your show, uh, Colorado has changed the laws in 2016, and uh, child sex trafficking is now in law, uh, in statute, a form of child abuse and neglect. And so it is an cumber, it's the law now of mandatory reporters to report suspicions of child sex trafficking or identified cases of child sex trafficking to uh, the Colorado Child Abuse Hotline, and that's 1-844-CO4-KIDS. That was a lot of numbers I threw at you. It was a lot. Of, we'll, we'll go through them at the, again, again at the end, and we'll, um, I'll get them posted up on the, on the graphic as well when we, uh, if, when we, when we post the show. Okay, so I've, I, I see a relationship in a grocery store at a bus station um, that that's I'm getting that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm a mandatory reporter, so I have a duty to act. I who am I looking at? Am I looking at a a, a, a white man and a black woman? Am I looking at a you know a, a Mexican man and a Chinese woman? Am I looking at a, a white? What what what's my demographic? Is it, or is it is it truly just? It's everywhere. It's everybody. Like you, you we're, is that why this has been such a difficult battle? You got it. You're exactly right. It is everybody. You know, unfortunately, you know, trafficking victims don't have a scarlet A on their chest. They are everyone and everybody. They come from all walks of life. They're male. They're female. Um, they're transgender. They're um, from coming from all different nationalities. They're U.S. citizens. They're foreign nationals. And the, the the couplings, if you will, between trafficker and victim are going to be different. You know, you might have a female trafficker with female victims. You might have a male trafficker with male victims. You might have male trafficker with female victims and vice versa. You have all of those combinations. So, and that's why it's so difficult. You know, we have not done a great job. And I've been working in this field for a really long time, as we said at the beginning of your show. And we still aren't identifying even 1% of the potential victims that are out there. So it is really difficult because of all of these things, you know, trafficker, trafficking victims are not coming forward and saying, hey, here I am, like, I'm a trafficking victim. They often don't have that language to say what that's what their situation is. Like, often victims aren't going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a trafficking victim. These are the things that are happening to me. Like, please help me. They're going to say, like, oh, I'm in this really bad work situation, maybe. That's not very good. I want to I want to say something because in talking with an administrator of a facility that worked with uh, t- uh, trafficking victims, and this one was primarily girls from the sex traffic industry, um, they said they're they're the, the the some of the toughest things they had to deal with was not the therapeutic interventions, which of course are are massive at that level of abuse and abandonment and PTSD and trauma and, but that the the traffickers the pimps would literally park outside the facility for days at a time and wait um Mm -hmm. because the girls would consistently look for a way to escape and get back and that there was recruitment going on in the recovery facilities that 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 Mm -hmm. that the wounding stockholm syndrome um had gone that far and that deep is that accurate absolutely it's 100 percent accurate um which is hard because like recruiting is going to show in a positive light with your trafficker. It's like, oh, you know, you probably are in his bad graces because you got caught and got picked up by the police and now have been sent to this facility. So you might be costing him, you're costing him him or her money. 
But then a way to get into the good graces and to make up for that is to recruit a new victim on your way out as you run away. Um, and that does happen. The Stockholm syndrome is a true thing that, you know, that, that psychological bond with your trafficker is a major thing and makes it really, really difficult um, to really try to extract someone away from their trafficker. Like you might get them out and try to put them in a, a place to, for healing. And then, you know, they might ha go back several times, very similar to domestic violence. And so you kind of have to think about that, you know, that it might take this person several several incidences before they finally are okay to leave their situation for real. And then it's still really hard. And so as clinicians and as service providers, you really have to understand that and be open to that and be non-judgmental non about that and recognize that's just part of the process, that that is a reality. And oftentimes um, people with really good, big hearts want to open a facility up and they're not prepared for that. They're not prepared for the runaways. And then they feel like they're, they've failed because everyone in their facility has run away. And it's like, well, actually, that's just part of the process. You have to be prepared for that. And that has to be part of your, your treatment plan is that someone's going to run away. And how do you deal with that? And how do you still be there for that person? Now, you also just, just broached another topic, which is based on my understanding of, of Colorado. We've, we've really pushed hard to transition from punitive actions towards people who have been uh, trafficked into mental health and recovery. And, of course, like any state, we're battling funding for facilities like mm -hmm. this because a lot of the younger kids end up in in DYC and end up going to Department of Youth Corrections uh, 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 facilities and as you and I both know that's that's a consistent battle that it, that Kafka is fighting to try to get funding for facilities so they're not shutting down left and right mm -hmm. so is is that also accurate that we are saying okay yes we busted you with drugs and prostitution however it's come clear to us that you're being trafficked so instead of being punitive we're going to get you some help absolutely that is definitely something that is very much happening in Colorado and are you know as more and more prosecutors and investigators are trying on their on this issue they're understanding that and recognizing that and saying hey we get it like, exactly what you just said like we get you know yeah we could arrest you and charge you with prostitution or um, drug trafficking or drug possession or whatever it is but we're going to find a way to try to work with you and provide you the services that you need um, and 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 do that the best they can now here in Colorado like all states across the country we don't have a we have we don't have a ton of facilities to be able to offer services to individuals in our state and that's a real challenge a huge gap we definitely have some amazing human beings doing really great work it's, but it's often not enough you know just not enough and we have facilities closing all the time and that's a really hard battle is how do we have enough services available um, for the victims that are identified and again we hope to identify more victims so if we're already hurting in that area now, what happens when we are doing a better job at identifying victims? How do we continue to meet up, keep up with the demand that we potentially will have for services and make sure everyone's trained and on the same page too? If we're still only tapping into the 1% as well with as many people yeah. as are being rescued, and the resources to battle this, this is, this, is a, this is a real war in my opinion. This is, this is drug war level. And I think the other thing with services that's really challenging and something that, you know, a survivor has reminded me is that it's a long-term 
service that they need. You know, this, it's a long-term battle that a survivor is going to need ongoing service provision really for the rest of their life. And how do we do that? You know, financially, how do we create systems that allow someone to kind of ebb and flow into service provision, service provision when they need it? And, you know, often we with other crimes, we're like, oh, you know, we'll pay, you know, a victim comp will pay for 10 sessions with a mental health professional. And then after 10 sessions, you're on your own. That's really, you know, for a victim of human trafficking, it might take them 10 sessions to get to a place where they might trust their mental health provider and be at a place where they're actually starting to talk to them more openly about their situation and starting to the healing process because they have such a lack of trust. And so then we're saying, oh, well, now you have to pay for it yourself. Like that's really hard. And so how do we set up systems to be more supportive of this long-term need for services? And, and how um, do you ask them to pay for it for themselves when for who knows amount of time they've been potentially brainwashed, they've been, uh, their, their food and shelter needs have been provided regardless of how, you know, awful they may have been. They they may have no job skills. They, there's there's a lot here. This is a thick thick battle, and I really get what you're saying that this is a a lifetime of recovery. Okay, I've got I we I only have about ten minutes left with you, so I want to put you on the spot with something, and I certainly understand with your position. If you can't say some of this answer, then you know I get it but I want to know who the good guys and the bad guys are. And I'm talking about corporations. I want to know, mm. is there anybody out there that you don't go shopping at because you know what's going on behind the scenes? That's a great question. Um, I really, I do really strive to do as much as I can to buy fair trade goods and, you know, goods that are made without slavery. And that's one of the ways that you could do it is looking for that fair trade symbol. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, Instead of saying, instead of staying away from people, I really strive to find where there's good stuff. Um, so, I mean, at your local King Supers, there's fair trade sugar. So I always try to bake with like fair trade sugar and fair trade coffee. And um, I certainly try to do that even with like shopping and buying, you know, buying t-shirts and other things and jewelry and gifts for my family. I really um, try to always challenge myself every holiday season to buy gifts that are made without slavery and really search high and low for those things. Um, some good, you know, local places in Colorado, like 10,000 Villages has um, amazing fair trade goods. I just recently saw on Facebook, there's like a quarterly, you know, that's very popular to have these boxes that send you stuff. There's a something called the cause box and all the things that are in that box that you get quarterly are all fair trade goods. So it could introduce you to different um, organizations and agencies that are doing good stuff. Um, one thing I one, one thing I'm, uh, to know about a company um, recently, Patagonia was digging deep in their supply chain and realized that some of their suppliers for their clothing was involved in slavery and um, human trafficking. And they, took it upon themselves to no longer um, shop at those, um, at, to use those suppliers and really, and then that prompted them to do an even a bigger audit of all of their clothing lines and everything that they carry in their store and really be thoughtful about that and um, have really then turned around and promoted a lot of fair trade lines. Um, Prana is another clothing store that has a lot of fair trade lines. Another, if, if, for those listeners who love ice cream, Ben and Jerry's as a company several years ago has 100% right, yeah. of everything that goes into the making of their ice cream 
is fair trade and sustainable and environmentally friendly. Um, so everyone who pays for Ben and Jerry's, it's, even though it's a little bit more expensive of an ice cream, you could um, eat that ice cream with a clear conscience. So you've, you've, you've brought to light one of the things that a lot of people know is that the organic fair trade stuff um, that's made with with consciousness. For example, Patagonia, um, a, an amazing company that has always been so conscious and so forward thinking to audit themselves at that level and to find out that that's going on and to make immediate change. I can imagine that, you know, uh, uh, the Patagonian was devastated to discover that and mm -hmm. the action that they took. And their stuff is really expensive. So, yeah. so I guess the reason why I ask about who should we avoid is because sometimes we can't, maybe we don't have the extra money to only buy from the people who don't, but are there any big people out there that we should be marching in front of their streets, they're, they're building these multinational corporations that don't give a damn about where, mm -hmm. whether they're raping the rainforest or uh, children or, uh, you know, and, 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 like, who are the bad guys? Like, like, who do we fight? Because going after them one at a time. Yeah. I, I mean, quite frankly, it feels it feels very hopeless. And as a person who's on the front lines of of the drug, alcohol, and self harm battle, depression and anxiety, it's it's a it's a massive undertaking. And yours is no different. So, is there a place we should all avoid until they get the clue that they will not make money off of us until they stop treating humans as commodity? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I think one of the big, um, I'll give you um, one, there is a big campaign that was launched out of um, Florida with a, um, an anti a organization that does anti-trafficking work called the Coalition for Immokalee Workers. And they have a campaign against Wendy's actually. Um, and this is all based in the US. Um, their campaign has been really focused on um, tomatoes, actually, and wow. who is picking our tomatoes and how are they being paid and how are they being treated. And the Coalition for Mockley Workers have been successfully campaigning lots of other companies like, you know, McDonald's and Subway and Chipotle and all these other people who use tomatoes um, to, you know, to, to shift their tomato purchases from the farm's um, that are exploiting people to farms that are paying their people correctly. And they're just, and, and their, their increase was like getting people an extra couple pennies, a, you know, a bushel, if you will, for their tomatoes. Oh. And Wendy's has been one of those companies that has refused to do that. So um, I've actually avoided going to Wendy's for several years now. Um, they have really good French fries. They have a really good, you know, that that milkshake they make is really good. But um, that's frosty, a place where, yeah. yeah, that frosty is really good. But that's a place that I've been avoiding. Um, and Hershey's for forever has pledged that they're going to change their practices in um, obtaining cacao um, for the making of their chocolate. Uh, they keep making pledges by, you know, by this date, by this year, by this year, and has yet to actually fulfill their promises in where uh, the vast majority of cacao that is what makes chocolate comes from the Ivory Coast in Africa. And about 66% of cacao, the world's cacao comes from the Ivory Coast. And that um, the people and the, the farmers of cacao um, in the Ivory Coast, a vast majority of them use um, young children as slaves to um, to harvest the cacao, and Hershey's is one of the one of the biggest uh, 
um, people, companies out there that has yet to turn around and actually go for fair trade chocolate providers that actually are in abundance these days and, and uh, also are in the Ivory Coast. There are many fair trade uh, cacao suppliers within the Ivory Coast and other places across the, across the globe, and they have yet to make that, that switch and make that turn. How do you, um, so, how do you keep your <clears throat> wits about you, your, your positivity, your, it, uh, in the middle of all of this? How do you, you, you see some of the darkest nature of man? And I, and I say man, I mean men. And you see yes. some of the darkest nature of men doing some of the worst things to other humans. How do you, how do you keep, how do you keep a, a smile on your face? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And one of the things that, you know, when I'm having a hard day, you know, um, I think the universe loves to remind me why I'm here. And I often will get a phone call from a survivor that I've met or an email or something, um, you know, and this, and that's what keeps me going is like the, the, the many survivors that I've had the fortune to engage with and meet with and see how amazing they are as human beings and how, you know, and what they've done with their lives and how they've been able to overcome the worst of humanity in their lives and how they've been treated and how they've been able to come out the other side and be amazing, wonderful human beings that are contributing to the world in whatever way that is. Like I've met survivors who have dedicated their lives to anti-trafficking work and that's phenomenal and wonderful and surprising because no, they certainly don't need to do that. And I've also made survive, met survivors who have just moved on with their lives and they're living happy lives as hairdressers or as, um, as clinicians and getting their degree and helping others um, or as teachers or whatever that is. And that really keeps me going because it reminds me why I'm here. It's for them. It's so more survivors are able, more trafficking victims are able to become survivors and, live their lives as they're meant to have lived and move on from this horrible thing that has happened to them and be productive members of society. Cause that's what we've all just asked for. That's the only thing that we want in life is to be live a happy life. And so if I could help create that in any small way for more people, then I'm doing my job and it's worth it. All right. Final question before I ask for the, the hotline numbers again, are there any politicians out there that you are 100% behind because they're in this battle with you that they they know how bad this is and they're they're if they get elected they're going to use their resources to make a big change. Yeah, you know, what the lucky thing that I have in with the issue of human trafficking that it is actually truly a bipartisan issue and I've had Republicans and Democrats, you know, people on both sides of the aisle really come to the forefront and be champions on this issue. Um, you know, just to talk about some people, this legislative session, you know, Representative Landgraf, Representative Carver have been huge champions, uh, Representative Lendeen, Senator Kafalis, uh, former representative and now a district attorney for the Denver, for Denver, Beth McCann has been a huge champion. She was the one that, uh, the person who sponsored the original legislation in Colorado that changed our trafficking laws. 
for oh. the better. Um, Beth McCann has been amazing. Um, our current attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, has been a champion for the issue of human trafficking. Um, so, you know, that's what's actually really wonderful about this issue is that that's one thing we don't have to worry about, that it is truly a bipartisan issue. Um, and so that's super excited, exciting to see and that we just have champions on both sides that are ready to take up this issue and put it, push it forward and help us um, get some good um, laws passed. Okay, Maria, holy mackerel. This has been, my head is spinning. This has been such a, I have pages of notes in front of me based on what you said so that I can, I can just, I can teach, I can push this information forward. This is so huge. Numbers to call if you, you've seen something, you think you've saw seen something, and and I will tell every parent, teacher, and clinician, if you think you've seen something, understand that that's enough to call a professional, a caseworker, who will do the work from there, who is qualified to say, no, nah, that's nothing, or yes, that's something. As a mandatory reporter, we are not trained to question the instinct when you say, um, huh, I suspect something. If you suspect, you call. You let the experts work with your suspicion and they will take action if action is necessary to take. Um, so Maria, what are some of the numbers again that they can call? Absolutely, so the first number, the National Human Trafficking Hotline number, their hotline number is 1-888-3737-888. Their text number, you could text HELP or INFO to 233-733. The next number is for our Coloradans. If you want to call within the state of Colorado, the Colorado Network to End Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-866-455-5075. And then for our mandatory reporters who listen to this podcast, you should know the number already, but the Colorado uh, Child Abuse Hotline is 1-844-CO4KIDS. Maria, thank you. Thank you for not just, I mean, the courage. It, it, I don't want this to sound belittling, but I admire what you're doing. I admire this frontline battle that you've taken on as your mission and vision and passion and purpose. You certainly, man, you've got this stuff dialed down. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing for our kids and, and for the men and women who are caught in the mosh of this this horrendous thing. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to do this work. It's my passion, um, clearly. <laughs> and um, I love what I do every day because I get to work on something that I'm really passionate about and I really believe in. And so it makes it easy to come to work. Awesome. All right. Stand by for a second, Maria. Parents, teachers, and clinicians, uh, you know my rules. Thank you for joining us today. And the rules are this, and I'll say them always and I'll say them again. Doing this work, being out here on the front lines like Maria, like the people who are working with clients who are struggling and suffering just to be happy, the rules are this. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second, and you take care of the children third, because in this way, we do our best work with our children. I want to thank Mental Health News Radio for the consistent opportunity to be able to interview and promote people and services and guests who are the experts in this industry. I want to thank my guest, Maria Trujillo from the Colorado Department of Public Safety. And folks, thank you for listening, taking the time out of your day to be here with me. And we'll see you next time on Beyond Risk and Back. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.